go ahead and open in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6, if you're unfamiliar with where that's at, never feel ashamed for turning to the table of contents. That's what it's there for, to help you find your way. And while you're turning there, uh, I do want to say Happy Father's Day. I forgot about that in my uh, uh, welcome time, so Happy Father's Day. I'm an equal opportunity forgetter. I think I forgot Mother's Day as well. Uh, I, every holiday I have forgotten. I don't think I've actually gotten one right. Uh, but Happy Father's Day to all the dads here and all the people who have dads here. Um, so First Kings chapter 6. First Kings chapter 6 is where we're going to be. So we have been walking through the book of First Kings together, in which we are looking right now at the life and reign of King Solomon. And so we are now at the point where we saw two weeks ago where he was gathering materials to build the temple uh, in fulfillment of what God promised his father David in Second Samuel chapter 7. And so now we're getting to the actual building of the temple. And so we're going to be looking at both chapter 6 and 7 this morning. So here's the rundown of what things are going to look like for us this morning. We are going to walk through chapter 6 and 7, and I'm just going to give you an overview of what did they do, how did they build the temple, and then after we do that and give you a picture of what they built, I'm going to tell you, or we're going to look at what are some themes, what's a theme that we see in this text for us this morning, and how it impacts our lives today. And so this building was built 3,000 years ago, uh, but it has meaning for you and me this morning. And so let's look at the text together, and we'll pray, and then we'll get going. And so we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13, and then I will pick out different verses from there on. So Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the last... Uh, in, I'm sorry. Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of his reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The portico, it's the porch, in the front of the temple sanctuary was 30 feet long, extending across the temple's width and 15 feet deep in front of the temple. He also made windows with beveled frames for the temple. He then built a chambered structure along the temple wall, encircling the walls of the temple. That is the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. The inner sanctuary is code for the Holy of Holies. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest chamber was seven and a half feet wide. The middle was nine feet wide. And the third was ten and a half feet wide. He also provided offset ledges for the temple all around the outside so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. The temple's construction used finished stones. This is, this is crazy. Listen to this verse. The temple's construction used finished stones cut at the quarry so that no hammer, chisel, or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. That is crazy craftsmanship. The door for the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the temple. They went up a stairway to the middle chamber and up, up from the middle to the third. When he finished building the temple... He paneled it with boards and planks of cedar. He built the chambers along the entire temple, joined the temple uh, with cedar beams. Each story was seven and a half feet high. 
the word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, and keep all my commands by walking in them, I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. Let's pray, and then we will dive into what's happening in these two chapters this morning. So, Father, come before you. We thank you for your word. And so we just pause to acknowledge our need for you, our dependence upon you, uh, sending the Spirit to open our hearts to understand your word. And so we ask for you to reveal it to us and help us to understand what you want to say to us this morning about your presence with us and your holiness. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So he's built, actually, Kyle, if you go ahead and throw this picture up, I'm going to show you. I'm going to leave this picture up for the duration of this beginning portion, so that way we have an idea of what we're talking about here. So he's built a temple structure. This thing is 30 feet wide, 45 feet tall, 90 feet long ways back. I don't know, the, I don't know whatever, long ways. Uh, and so on the sides, he's got little uh, rooms that are, there's three stories here, and these for, for storage and different, different usages there. And so that's what we've just walked through right there, is he was giving the dimensions of his temple. Now, the whole temple mount was much larger than just the building, but he's just talking about the building itself right here. Um, and so that's what he's building. Now, all of this was used, all, the, the structure were these, were these quarried rocks. And this is the craziest thing ever, that they were able to cut these in the quarry, bring them to the temple mount, slide them in place, and there was not a temple, not a hammer used in the entire construction. That is mind-boggling craftsmanship that they, that they had the ability to do. Um, so that's where we're at there. Now, after we've gotten the dimensions, then God came to Solomon in verse 11 and renewed his promise or kind of gave the, the covenant renewal there. And he said, listen, if you guys obey me, I promise to stay with you and to live among you. And this temple was the, the visual, the, like the, 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 the picture of that, of God's presence among his people. So now let's go on. And I want to talk about the rest, like the inside and see it's all gold, the inside, and then these outside basins of water, and then the altar here. And, uh, and so we're going to look at what the text says about that. And then here in a minute, I'm going to tell you why it's important. So when Solomon, verse 14, Solomon finished building the temple, he paneled all of the interior with wood. So that way, when you walked into the temple structure, there was nothing, you couldn't see any rock whatsoever. It was completely paneled with wood. So the, uh, And so inside of it, so here's where he gets down into uh, uh, verse 16. He lined 30 feet of the rear of the temple. That's this room back here. He lined that uh, with cedar boards from floor to the surface of the ceiling. And he built the interior as an inner sanctuary, and that was called the most holy place. And so if you're coming to the temple, not everyone could just go in the temple. You had to be a male. You had to be a Jew. And uh, so you could come into the temple area. And in the back of the temple was a special place called the most holy place. And that's what he's going to talk about here, starting in verse 16. The temple, verse 17, that is the sanctuary in the front of the most holy place was 60 feet long. The back was 30 feet long, and it was 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. It was a cube. 
And, uh, and that's important later on when we're one day, when we study the book of revelation, that will come back into place, uh, for us. The interior was, was cedar paneled and he prepared the inner sanctuary again, the back, the back section. He prepared verse 19, the inner sanctuary inside of the temple. And here's what he put in there. He put the ark of the Lord's covenant in there. So in the center of this Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's presence and God's power among his people. And that's what they placed in the very center of the Holy of Holies. Now, there were two other things they put in the Holy of Holies, at least at, at this point. They put in two cherubim. Now, when I say cherubim, those are a type of angel. So when you get the word angel, that's like our word monster. So, so if you think of vampires, werewolves, uh, I don't know, what's another thing was on the vampires, werewolves, (laughs) jack-o'-lanterns, I don't know, the headless horsemen, I don't know, whatever. All of those fit under the category of monster. Same thing with angel. Angel is a catch-all term. Cherubim was a type of angel. I don't know exactly what they did, but there's a specific thing of, these are cherubim uh, in here. And, uh, and so what he did is if you go on to verse 24, uh, he, uh, one wing of the cherub was seven and a half feet long. And, uh, and so there was a 15 foot wingspan. And so they had two of them guarding the Ark of the Covenant and they had a wing touching this wall and a wing touching that wall and their wings touched in the middle. I don't know why that's important, but he was very specific about that's what's in that room. Now, inside of these rooms, He took it, go back to verse 22. He added gold overlay to the entire temple until everything was completely finished, including the entire altar that belongs to the inner sanctuary. And so he's putting these things in this for a purpose. He's signifying God's presence and God's power among his people. But then there's something else he's putting in there. He is overlaying everything in the building with pure gold. And that's going to be important for us. He's, he's overlaying everything with pure gold. And then he's coming in and putting engravings. So he talks about this uh, in verse 29. He carved all the surrounding temple walls with carved engravings, cherubim, palm trees, and flower blossoms. And he puts that all over the doors, all over the walls of the inner sanctuary and the main temple. He's got it. He's got these engravings everywhere. So that's what's happening on the interior of the temple. Now scoot ahead to verse, I mean, to chapter seven. Now this one through 14 or really one through 12 talks about Solomon's other projects that he builds during this time. And the main one is his other, his home. And it was adjacent to the Temple Mount. He talks about his palace and a palace he builds for one of his wives. We're not going to worry about that this morning. But that's what's happening in those verses is just his other building projects for his own home. But go down here to verse 13. Now, King Solomon had Hiram, who was a different guy than King Hiram, brought from Tyre, from the same city, kind of confusing, different person. But this dude was crazy skilled at what he did. He was a craftsman. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali. 
And his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze craftsman. And Hiram had great skill. And that's an understatement. He had great skill, understanding, and knowledge to do every kind of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and carried out all his work. So Solomon has established a temple here. He's given us the dimensions. He told us about what all's happened inside. But now that you got a home, what do you got to do with it? Got to furnish it. You got to get stuff and make it real nice. And uh, and so what he brings in King, uh, he brings in Hiram to come and be his bronze man, the dude who's going to build all of his furnishings for the temple. So he begins. Look down at verse fifteen of chapter chapter seven. He begins with two pillars. And so here's one right here. And the other one goes right here. It didn't, it didn't get lopped off. It's just a cross section so you can see inside. But there's another one right here. So there's two of them right at the entrance. And one of them is called Yakin, and one of them is called Boaz. They have names. And so Yakin means may he establish or he will establish. And then Boaz means in him is strength. And those are going to come into play here in just a second. I'm going to talk about those in just a minute. But the other things he builds are a basin right here. This is called the sea. Here's a little person right here. You can see how big it was in comparison. It held 11,000 gallons of water, 15 feet wide, seven and a half feet tall. And the purpose of this was so that the priests could get in and ceremonially wash themselves uh, for the priestly duties that they had. Then bronze water cards down in verse 27. He built 10 bronze water carts. These were movable water basins. Um, and the reason you had those is so for ceremonial things. You can clean off an animal before you kill it to sacrifice it. Or you can use the water to clean off blood and entrails and things that were up here uh, before the, the altar. Uh, it was a pretty bloody place, just, just kind of being honest. Uh, because this right here is the altar where you burned your sacrifices to God. Uh, but that's actually talked about in Second Chronicles, not here in First Kings. Now, he, uh, let me scoot down here and finish this out because I want to move on to what is important for us here this morning. Uh, this is all important for us, but I mean, I want to get to a thing about God. So then Hiram completed all the bronze works. This is, I'm looking at verse 40, uh, that he was doing for King Solomon on the Lord's temple. So he built two pillars the bowls for the capitals that were on top, uh, two uh, gratings to cover both bowls, uh, and then 400 pomegranates. I'm telling you, the, the ordinateness of this thing is really striking, just how much these guys put into this temple, uh, just the engravings and all of that. Uh, then 10 water carts, 10 basins up for the water carts, uh, the big basin that was held up by 12 oxen. So th- actually, it's kind of cool. This, the sea, this big basin was held by, by 12 bronze oxen or oxes, oxen, uh, three of them facing in every direction, just kind of cool looking. And, uh, and so then scoop down to verse 48, Solomon also made all the equipment in the Lord's temple. So all the things that were going to be used inside of it, a golden altar, a gold table that the bread of the presence was placed on, the pure gold lampstands in front of the inner sanctuary, five on the right, five on the left, gold flowers, gold lamps, gold tongs, pure gold bowls. And so all of this was in use 
of worshiping God and sacrificing to God in his temple. Now, here's something that this teaches us about God. Now, I walked through all of that for a purpose. Um, one is because the Spirit of God felt it was important for us to have in our Bibles, and so we need, to, we need to learn about it because he thought it was important for us. But the second thing is this, is all of this, one, it's really foreign to us here in America, but this teaches us something very important about God. So as we have talked about leading up to this point, the purpose of the temple was to symbolize or to demonstrate to his people that God is with them. God is present among his people, and the temple was a picture of that, that God is here with you. He's not distant. He's not away. He's not out there, and he doesn't care about you. He is here, and there is his home. That is what he was saying to his people. But there's a second quality that I want you to see in the full description of these two chapters that is vital for us today. And it's this, that God is holy. God is holy. He exists and lives among his people, but the manner in which he does it, he is demonstrating a quality about himself, and it's this, he is holy. Now, I was, I was at Southwestern this week, the seminary, and uh, working on my uh, this sermon, actually, uh, just getting away from the church, because if you sit at the church and try to write stuff, it's really a train wreck usually, um, just cause it's so distracting. There's a lot of things just to look at, or, you know, just like, like, a they're painting or you're just trying to, okay, what do we do with this table? And, and so sometimes it's good to get away. And so, uh, I was up at the seminary and there was an old Testament professor who was standing next to me at a table by me, uh, in the student section. I, I was like, Hey, uh, how would you describe holiness to, to your congregation? Uh, how would you, how would, like, how would you teach holiness to someone? Because for me, for many of us as Americans, we don't hold very much as holy. Like this, the idea of there being a holy God, something is complete reverence. I need to take my shoes off to enter into the presence of this being or in this place is really foreign to a lot of us because we as Americans live by, I rule my life. And I'm going to live how I want, and I'm going to wear a mask if I want to wear a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask if I don't want to. Like that's, we just kind of our mentality of like nothing is holier or bigger than me. But he described this, and I, I thought it was so brilliant. He said, I had a student once who described holiness to me in this manner. He used to be, he's no longer in the military anymore, but he was in the army and he was one of the soldiers who protected the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. And, and so this professor started to explain to me the process and everything about the tomb of the unknown soldier. Um, and so here, here's, here's a, an American holy site that many of us would grasp onto or begin to understand. So the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is in Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C., and it represents all soldiers who have fought for the United States, uh, but their remains were, were left unidentified. And, uh, and so uh, because of that, they were not able to have a proper burial. So the United States in 1921 uh, 
took uh, four soldiers from World War I who were unidentified, and they, they exhumed their, their caskets from France where they had a cemetery, and they were going to select one of those four to be representative of all U.S. soldiers who were left unidentified from World War I. And, um, and so they had a ceremony for these four soldiers, and then they had a decorated uh, uh, veteran to come and select which of the four caskets was going to be the one who's going to be buried in the National Cemetery. And so they went, and it, they were all the exact same. They had the exact same look, and he chose the third, the third casket, and that one was selected to come and be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. And so now there have been several other Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers related to different wars uh, that we've had. And so there's one for World War II. There's one for Vietnam. But the main one that, that we all think of is this first one from 1921. And uh, now this tomb has been guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, since 1937. And there's not been an hour since 1937 that there has not been a posted guard, soldier, guarding this tomb. And so there is, when you go there, there is uh, a strict, like, command for silence or, or reverence uh, for that place. And so the soldiers are actually, they're not just ceremonial. Like, if they deem that someone is being disrespectful or too loud, like, their job is to get you to stop. And, uh, and so their, their entire presence in there is to demonstrate, if you cross and try to come over to this tomb, I'm going to stop you. Now, he was explaining, this professor was explaining their routine to me. And so, uh, so they work on, on shifts, but what they do the day, they're on their day off before they go back on their shift to guard the tomb is they spend eight, it takes the average soldier eight hours to prepare their uniform to make sure it is exact, the exact measurement of where everything needs to be. And so they spend eight hours preparing that. And then once they're actually on duty, they, they guard the tomb in, in paces of 21. And the reason for 21 is because the 21-gun salute is the highest honor that the Army can bestow on a person. And, uh, and so they pace 21 steps across the tomb, and then they, they turn and pause for 21 seconds, and they turn back the other direction and pause for 21 seconds, and they take 21 steps, and then do the exact opposite on the other end. Now, there is a, about that site, that is probably one of the holiest sites in American culture. Because if you go there, there is a sense of awe or a sense of reverence to where like you, you know, I need to be silent. I need to mind my manners. I need to just observe. And, and so, and so we have this sense of, of holiness that we have given to this tomb. And that like, do we see the ceremony that is given to this tomb? Well, in the same way, What's happening here with God's temple is his holiness is on display for his people in the manner in the manner of all the detail that is provided here in the text. 
and with the skill that was displayed to create all of these things with all of the bronze, all of the cedar, all of the stones, all of the gold, there is skill displayed where they brought in special craftsmen to come and make these specific things. Why? Because it needed to be as good as possible. Why? Because it was for a holy God. The place that you're entering into is representative of God himself. And so it needed to have the, the holy level, the reverent level ascribed to it that God himself has. Also, the materials used within it, the bronze, the cedar, the gold, it had to be of a specific ilk. It needed to be good. But here's, here's also the ornateness of this place. To where there were carvings throughout the entire inside to display the ornateness, the holiness of God. And then here's the last thing, is the purpose of much of the construction. The purpose of much of this outside construction of the temple displayed or told us about God's holiness, his being other than us. And it was this. Why are all of these things, the altar, the basins, why was all that necessary? Sacrifice. Sacrifices. God is holy and we are not. And so therefore, in order to become holy like God, something had to die in your place. That's what's happening here. And here's the last thing that displays God's holiness here. Go back to verse, or chapter 6, verse 12. God is giving his command to his people. And what does he say in it? As for this temple you are building, if you, are, if you walk in my statutes, if you observe my ordinances, and if you keep all of my commands by walking in them, I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. And I will dwell among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. Here's what he just said. If you remain a distinct people by living holy lives, I will fulfill my promise to you by being your God. If you remain a holy people, I will remain your God. That's what he just said here. That's what he just said here. And so all of this is, descri- is describing a holy God that we should not have access to. It is a holy God who, who requires specific ceremony to be able to, to approach him and to come to him. And, and, and so he's displaying that through his temple. It's a, oh, Kyle's gone. Anyways. Now, in this text... I could feel a tension here because there is this call to be holy like God. He says, be holy like me and I'll be your God. But if you're not holy like me, I'm not going to be your God. I'm not going to uphold that. That's what he said in that right there. I made a promise to your dad. If you are holy, I'll be your God. But there's a tension here because of these pillars. Okay, because of these pillars, there's a tension here. I want you to see this is fascinating. Okay, so go back to chapter seven, verse 15. He cast two bronze pillars. One of them was called Yakin. This is in verse 21. 
Yakin, and the other one here had a name as well, called Boaz. The one called Yakin means he will establish. Boaz means in him is strength. And so there is this tension in the text here in which God says, be holy like me or I'm out. But then also entering into the temple, you have to pass by these pillars. You literally have to go past them in which they are called, but God establishes you and in God is strength. And so there is this tension there because he was talking about his king. He was talking about his king. God is the one who established his king and his people. And God is the one who gives strength to his king and to his people. So God is the one who establishes and God is the one who sustains. And so how does that work if God is the one who established and God is the one who sustained if there's also this command to be holy or I'm out? How does that go together? I don't like, and so you read it and you're like, man, this is confusing. This doesn't work. There's a tension here. How do these go together? And what God is displaying in his temple and in his command to his people, little glimpses of what he was going to do one day for all of his people. He's giving glimpses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because ultimately, it's finally in Jesus that we see the marriage of these two things. How can God be the one who establishes and the one who sustains while also saying, you have to be holy like me, and if you're not, you're out? How can those things go together? Well, then he sent his son, Jesus, and all of a sudden, he begins to put the pieces of the puzzle together for us to begin to see it. Because ultimately, what he's trying to demonstrate is it's not about you. It's about me. It's not about you. It's all about me. And when Jesus came, what happened is he came and lived the perfectly sinless life. He was perfectly obedient to God. He was perfectly holy like God because he is God. He was perfectly holy. And then what did he do? He died as a sacrifice in our place. He died as a sacrifice in our place. And so now if we believe in Jesus, we gain his holiness to our account. That's the point. And so it's in Jesus, God established a new covenant, a new relationship, but it's not based on you and me. It's not based on our attempts to be holy, but it's based solely on Jesus and his holiness, his work. And so now by our faith, it is God that establishes us and it is God that sustains us. In a relationship with him. That is what all of this was pointing to. Is God is the one who establishes. God is the one who sustains. And God is the one who makes us holy through his son. And all of this, remember, was a symbol of his presence with his people. And what happens to the person who believes in Jesus? 
God the Father and God the Son send the Spirit to indwell them, to come and live in them, so that way His presence is no longer here, but it's in them. That is what this temple is pointing to. And so by this, by the gospel, God makes good on his promise to his, to his King David. In which he said, I am the one who establishes. And I am the one who sustains. And so if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus and you have started a relationship with him, know this, that it was God who established that relationship with you. And it is God who sustains that relationship with you through his son's Jesus's or through his son Jesus and his holiness. It's God who establishes and it's God who sustains. Now, there's one more thing I want you to see this. Because now, based out of Christ's sacrifice for you and me, the call to remain holy or be holy is still present. So we've been established. There's a new relationship between us and between us, like between us and God. And so Christ's power, his victory in establishing us and in sustaining us has also removed the stain of sin from us. He's also removed the stain of sin from us for when God looks at us, he sees holiness. He sees this person could come to me. This person should pray to me. This person is mine because they are holy like me. Jesus accomplished that through his sacrifice and through the work of the Spirit. Catch this. Sin, the thing that marred us in the first place, now no longer holds any control over the person who believes in Jesus. Sin no longer controls the person who believes in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus did away with it. Jesus was the sacrifice in our place. He did away with our sin. And now you have the ability to not sin. To be holy like God. Now the commandment from God is attainable through the work of the Spirit in us because of our belief in Jesus. I want you to hear that. And so the sin that you deal with, the sin that you return to, and I heard this at youth camp this week, and it was so profound, like it was helpful for me, so helpful for me. The sin that you return to daily or weekly, where you turn constantly, you're like, man, I just feel like I can't get victory over this. I want you to hear this. If you believe in Christ, sin no longer holds control over you. You have, you have power. Through the work of the Spirit in you, God is the one who sustains. It is God at work. He's the one who sustains. Sin no longer controls you. I want you to hear that. But in this, we see a holy God. And when we look at this, we think, man, that is so different than me. It is so holy other than me. But in it, what he shows us is his grace. He's showing us his grace and saying, I establish you and I sustain you. And it's all through my son, Jesus. And so let's pray.